previously on the Kaiju Apostle Podcast. <laughs> yeah, our show is nothing except a source of constant anxiety and fear for our guests. I've been a Godzilla fan since, uh, you know, shortly after mastering potty training. That doesn't tell us how long it's been. Space women were a problem. I mean, it wasn't a problem to me. So the Toho lawyers who were listening about you adapting their stuff are now, they've picked their pens back up and they're furiously scribbling notes now. Moist, minion, everything. I have eight lovely patrons right now and I'm getting very close to the point. How many ugly ones? What was that about moist, minion? Oh, man. So welcome back to the Kaiju Apostle podcast, a show where two seminarians discuss and read way too much into giant monster films. I'm David. I'm Chris. And joining us is Ben. And I actually did not ask how to pronounce your last name before we started. So I'm going to sound like a jerk. <laughs> it's it's pretty. It's just warming. Uh, okay. it's, got an, it's got an H in there because my family is from the like Eastern Europe, like Austro-Hungary, Germany area. So mm-hmm. there's they snuck an extra continent consonant in there that doesn't need to be there. But you know, it's just warming. So an extra continent. We're Asian men. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh thank you so much for joining us, Ben. So this is the first guest that we've had on that Chris knew before the show. Um, so you guys kind of have that connection there. So uh, if you wouldn't mind just sharing a little bit about yourself, maybe uh, some dirty laundry on Chris that we might be interested (laughs) in knowing. Uh, So, yeah, Chris and I met through uh, was mainly through just Twitter. I think Um, I write for a Star Wars fan site called 1138.com. And Chris kind of uh, interacted with me first on Twitter, mentioning that he really liked some of the stuff that I had written and uh, found out uh, partway into our friendship that he lives pretty close to where I live. So uh, we've actually met up a few times now in person, obviously in the before times um, to, uh, <laughs> to, um, to uh, like watch, we've watched uh, some old cheesy old star Wars stuff that may or may not have been bootlegged uh, <laughs> just to kind of, uh, you know, just to experience, it's it's always fun, more fun to experience stuff like that in a group than it is to watch it on your own. Absolutely. So uh, we kind of, you know, just hung out, had had some good times, laughed about uh, cheesy '80s Star Wars specials that very few people remember. Um, and yeah, we've kind of hung out, and I think, I mean, you can ask him, kind of yourself, why I've why he asked me to be on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> you know. Yeah, this yeah. was the kind of way of saying like, well, the first time we met was at a Chinese restaurant, and I feel like we're probably mm-hmm. the only people who've ever talked about the Yusan Vong ever in that restaurant. Yes, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> I feel like we probably will be. Um, and when you say frequent 1138, you mean obsessively, compulsively reads everything. Um, <laughs> I think Coop once messaged me, he's like, hey, you're not reading these right when I post these, are you? Because <laughs> I'm retweeting them the second they go up. So. Yeah, I uh, there are times I do miss being more active on Star Wars Twitter because 1138 was one of my favorite sites to go to. I always loved managing to get under Coop's skin, too. It was always fun because it takes <laughs> a lot. So if you can do it, it's definitely you feel very proud of yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's so you guys are very 
tight knit when it comes to not only your friendship, but Star Wars as well. But mm -hmm. when he told me that you were a Godzilla fan, I was definitely excited. So mm -hmm. kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, because a lot of people that we have on our show either have their own podcast, maybe they're an artist in the community. So what is mm -hmm. your history with this franchise? Yeah, um, I was brought kind of into the Godzilla world, so to speak, through my dad, who he grew up watching the English versions of uh, Godzilla films, you know, the Showa era specifically on like public access TV uh, back in, I would have been like the 70s. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, uh, come on at like three in the afternoon after he got home from school. And he kind of passed that love of the franchise down to me. Um, you know, he would come home from work some days. He would stop at like a blockbuster and rents Godzilla VHS tapes. Uh, and we watched them after dinner. And it was, it, I always kind of loved the franchise because it was something that I, number one, we, it was something that he had watched before. So he had pre-screened it. He knew that there wasn't anything too bad that was going to corrupt my young mind or anything like that at that age. But it was also something that he was that, um, you know, they were, they were fun. They were fun mm -hmm. movies that I could, that didn't bore me as a kid and that were, you know, they were colorful, they were lively. They had a lot of fun characters in them. Um, obviously it was the English versions back then. Um, but as time's gone on and I've kind of become more, um, I don't know, well-rounded as a person, I guess I've gotten more into obviously like the production side. I want to hear more about the history of how these films were made, um, watching in the ja original Japanese versions instead of the English dubs, um, and just kind of digging a little bit deeper into the films, um, both from a like, uh, textual standpoint, as well as a metatextual standpoint to see, okay, what are the, where, when were these films made? What's the context of these films? You know, I'm not like a historian or anything like that. I don't have the credentials we aren't either. Of, of, yeah, <laughs> I don't have the credentials of a lot of other people in the fandom. Um, you know, I don't have my own podcast, like you mentioned, but, um, I just, I, I love these movies. Um, I don't think, um, I was thinking about this yesterday. I don't think that there's a film like a Godzilla film made in Japan that I don't like, at least in to some degree, which I, which I don't know how rare that is in the fandom. I think that there's oh, we'll get at into least that one later. That, yeah. I think there's, there's at least one that most people don't like, but you know, going back through, um, I did a rewatch of the whole Showa era, um, recently. And I kind of posted at the time on Twitter about like what my opinions were on each film as I went. And I realized that a lot of the films that I hadn't liked when I was younger, I liked a lot more than I was mm -hmm. older. And watching them in the Japanese version helped a lot as well, because the a lot of the things that are problematic in the American versions aren't present in the Japanese versions, either the bad translations or the bad dub actors, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, there's, there's not a whole lot that I have to say about the films that I dislike. There are some mm -hmm. that I obviously are higher on my list than others but um i like being i like being a fan of a franchise that i can kind of go into without many reservations you know unlike a certain other one <laughs> i think it's funny that you mentioned you know your dad would watch and screen things before you'd watch it because i grew up watching this film you know that we're going to be talking about tonight a lot mm -hmm. as a kid i never noticed the porn in the back of the truck right never <laughs> noticed it and then as an adult i'm like okay well there's boobs that's cool i guess whatever <laughs> so um 
So you said that, you know, you grew up with the dubs like almost all of us did. So Mm -hmm. what inspired you to take these films? I wouldn't say more seriously, but what inspired that change or that shift of uh, perspective for you? Um, I think part of it was just like kind of wanting to experience them in their original form. Um, Because I, I think what prompted it was I was reading at some point, I have no idea when, but I was reading about... Um, specifically, uh, the King Kong versus Godzilla, the original one, obviously the new one isn't out and probably never will be. Thank you, Chris. Um, <laughs> um, but the original version, um, cause I grew, that was the one that I watched the most often was, hmm. was King Kong versus Godzilla. We had, we owned that tape and we would, did you have the, the, the box? It was the blue cover. I maybe, I don't remember. Okay. I, That's the I, one that like I felt like almost everybody had. It just it was yeah. that kind of turquoiseish blue VHS slip. It was great. It might be. It's it's honestly, it was one of those cases that I feel like probably got destroyed and we just had the tape. You know? <laughs> yeah, we had a few of those. Um, but I grew up watching that film a lot. It was the one that I it's to to this day, it's probably the one that I've seen the most. Um, but then I read an article about, I think it was like on a Godzilla fan site that was about all of the edits that were made to that, that film to change it to the American version. And it's like, oh yeah, they cut this out. They cut this out. And oh yeah, the entire musical score was replaced. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and I went back and watched it and I was like, what? yeah. So the American version, the entire musical score was replaced and all of the music that's in there is lifted out of universal monster movies. Mm -hmm. So if you've seen like creature from the black lagoon, you'll recognize half of the score from that movie. And it's like, Oh no, they, they, they just butchered this. Didn't they? This movie that I loved growing up is actually just a hacked up like Frankenstein's monster of a film. And then I went and watched the Japanese version. I'm like this movie, it's so much more coherent and better in Japanese than it is in the American version. And I mean, obviously not all of the films were hacked up like that in editing. Like, I think even the one we're talking about today wasn't edited very much. It was mainly just dubbed and then just kind of localized. But um, you guys even said it earlier on uh, in the run of the podcast that there's something inherently destructive about translation from one language into another. And I feel like something about the like an American or English dub of be it a Japanese film or another type of foreign film inherently feels more destructive than a subtitled version. Even if what's being spoken by the dub actors is the same as the subtitles. Um, I think the, the performance and emotion of the dub actor never matches the original actor, the original performance. And I feel like even if you don't understand the language, you can still get the emotion of the scene Mm -hmm from an actor. And so that's kind of what started me on that road was watching the original Japanese of Godzilla versus King Kong and realizing how much more I liked it than the, than the English version. And then going from there throughout the other films and just being like, you know, even the ones that previously I had disliked because of the bad localizations were actually good or at least not as bad as I had remembered. And there were things about them that I actually enjoyed. So, you know, it kind of it it helped me to enjoy the franchise more because I kind of understood the difference of like what the what the localization may have done to the perception to my own perception of the franchise and kind of going back to the original or at least as close to the original as I as a 
white man who cannot speak Japanese can get um, helped me to kind of establish a better foundation for like, oh, these are what these films are actually meant to be. Yeah. And I think something you said there is really important is, you know, when we talk about this idea of translation being violence, it's not that it's not inherently a bad thing. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if it wasn't for these dubs, we wouldn't even be able to have these conversations because the movies would have never come over to the States. You know, throughout the history of the franchise, it's been the Western fans that have helped keep the ball rolling. It's not I mean, Toho is not indebted to us entirely, but there's definitely mm -hmm. been that momentum. Right. So I think something to be said is, you know, some of these dubs people have fond feelings towards, but they're not necessarily great. Right. right. I mean, you especially look at like contemporary dubbing standards. And like I watched the Shin Godzilla dub here about a year or two ago, and it actually wasn't too bad. Um, I've done some of the Gamera dubs from the 90s. I mean, they're they're serviceable, right? It's definitely you feel like there's more of a, a reverence for the source material compared to the 50s, 60s and even 70s, because mm -hmm. back then, at least for Western viewers, there wasn't as positive of a reception towards these movies as we have now. And the movie we're discussing today is part of that, um, which mm. I guess we probably should say what movie we're discussing, right? I mean, yeah. it's in the title, uh, yeah. but we are discussing Godzilla vs. Megalon, which was released on March 17th, 1973. So let's go ahead and uh, we'll jump into the plot summary here. Ben, if you could go ahead and help us out with that. All right. Oh, okay. Once upon a time in the land of Cetopia lived a peaceful race ruled by Emperor Antonio. Uh, they had sank to the bottom of the ocean deep and remained quite quiet, made nary a peep, until the humans above let off a big bomb, kaboom, that enraged the Cetopians, and they swore the Earth Dweller's doom. Go, Megalon, they cried. Come help, Gigan, they pleaded while our protagonists were, at the hands of Zootopian agents, defeated. But thankfully the robot, Jet Jaguar, came too, and flew off to Monster Island to find a kaiju, who'd be willing to help, and lo and behold, Godzilla came swimming to help shoulder the load. The movie ends with some top-notch monster action, that Godzilla tailslide, supreme satisfaction. But if history has something to tell, we must ask, has this movie's legacy aged well? Thank you, Ben. Always just, it warms my heart. Like, I'm not trying to be, like, proud, but I'm like, <laughs> this is the kind of stuff that I, w I would love to write, like, a kid's book. <laughs> for Godzilla yeah, fans. Um, that new one, the King Kong and Godzilla are friends book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I know that some people have been making fun of that, but I'm personally excited for that because I'm a dad. So, whatever. All right, so staff for this movie, uh, this is one of the last that June Fukuda will direct, which is a bummer. Um, written by June Fukuda and Shinichi Sekizawa, but there is a giant asterisk next to that. Um, Tomoyuki Tanaka was producer. Surprise. Uh, music, Richiro Manabe returns. Chris, do you remember what movie he did? Man, I barely remember who did all of the Star Wars. I know. What's the only Godzilla movie we've talked about so far that's had a really weird soundtrack? Like, incredibly weird. Oh, um... Oh, gosh. I remember the discussion. Oh, no. People are adding me. 
People Roman are adding porn. me right now. Oh, that was like last week, wasn't it? No, it was a couple episodes oh, ago. Okay. It was a hetero. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Gosh, I wasn't going to get there. No, it's all good. I've just, everybody's blocking and unfollowing me right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you put your Roman phone in your mouth with really the Roman is. porn thing and you can't even remember that. Oh, gosh. I never thought I'd say that word so many times in 60 seconds. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, cinematography by Yuzuro Aizawa, and then special effects was Teriyoshi Nakano. So, trivia didn't really have a whole lot uh, that I got from this. Um, kind of went through Dave Klatt's book a little bit. Sorry, the sparkling seltzer water got me burping. Okay. Um, but really, I think the thing that stood out to me the most was that when we're looking at the time of this movie being released, there was a huge shift in the focus to TV from movies, which we've discussed, but especially it's these, you know, henshin heroes, right? The transforming shows like Ultraman. I mean, because by this point, you know, and I, I kind of talk about this a little bit later, um, by this point, we've had five Ultra shows, right? So we had Ultra Q, Ultraman, Ultra 7. Uh, we've had Return of Ultraman, and then it would be Ultraman Ace. Um, so we've had, I mean, really, I don't know if I'd consider Ultra Q as influencing superheroes, but we've had four Ultraman shows to this point. You know, there's other shows that are starting to come around. So that's where people are going, right? You don't have to do movie tickets. You just stay at home. You make your one-time investment in a TV and you watch your show every week. So Toho, very naturally, shifted towards that as well. Um, with the asterisk I had mentioned before, so Danny had brought up in our last episode on Godzilla vs. Gigan that uh, Shinichi Sekizawa and Takeshi Kimura had come together to write the plot. For They had all these different ideas. I think there was like Varan, there was that Yogg monster, uh, not Yogg, there was, I can't remember the name, um, and then like a Daimajin ripoff. Um, so there's all these different ideas that didn't end up being used for Godzilla vs. Gigan, which was also Megalon. So because that idea wasn't used there, this is where we get this new movie. So technically... Takeshi Kimura is not a credited writer here, but I mean, this was part of his idea. Um, and then lastly, we've never talked about this before, but this movie does definitely not pass the Bechdel test. There's mm -hmm. no possible way for it to do so. Um, right. Several, most Godzilla movies do not, but this is like the most glaring instance because all the women are just C-topian dancers pretty much. So mm -hmm. I thought that was yeah. uh, okay. a little interesting. I didn't think, I, I never really noticed that before, right? Till I was watching, yeah. I was like, oh my God, like there's no women in this film at all. Yeah, yeah. it's, the, this, this movie has a very small cast, like overall. Very, very. They had to make room for all the monsters. Mm. <laughs> Chris, if you could go ahead yes. and do the poll for us. Uh-huh, I sure can. Uh, this is the insect-wise one, right? Yes, I, I made I, sure to copy and okay. paste the right one this time. <laughs> well, last week, <laughs> last week when I was like, oh, this could have been different. <laughs> anyway, all right. So the question was, so far, insect-wise, we've had a spider, Kamanga, a praying manta, praying mantis, Kamakuris, moth, and then he left this blank, so I'm not sure whom we're talking about. And now we have a beetle with Megalon. So you're not allowed to spoil me on upcoming monsters. But what kind of bug did Toho leave on the table by not utilizing? 
So um, the fourth one, the one that you thought was the least uh, scary, was the dung beetle, the poop smith's favorite of all insects. I, I thought that would be the worst. I mean, have you seen the balls of crap that they roll? If you get stuck in that, yeah. you're done. There's That's, no way of getting out. I'm just guessing someone didn't want to dress in the dung covered costume. Yeah, probably. Um, okay, the this is where you are all wrong. So number three was mosquito, which is quite clearly the most scary of insects. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because like the I imagine they're suckers, but like. 11 stories tall. <laughs> mm-hmm. So the second one was uh, pill, pill bug or roly poly. And then finally, uh, the millipede, which, um, yeah, probably mm. scarier than a human centipede. Uh, <laughs> speaking of dung <laughs> beetles. <laughs> speaking of dung, oh, Lord. Um, that would be a really hard. How many actors do you think you would need in a millipede? Uh, kaiju monster i don't know that would almost have to be done like as a marionette oh maybe yeah Uh, hopefully it would look better than uh manda did in uh atragon though that one was a bit rough he's just (laughs) (laughs) so the twitter discussion for this episode um with godzilla vs megalon we see a continuation in the godzilla as superhero trajectory despite the lack of gravitas and the obvious ultraman influences does the movie work for you? Or should it sink to the depths alongside the Empire of Mu? Um, I was actually surprised at the majority of positive replies we had to this movie. Not saying it's bad, but like, I mean, for as much as y'all hate All Monsters Attack, this was very surprising to see the positive spin here. Um, Just read them out, why don't you? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we'll start with the Aqua Slug. Um, which if you remember him, we actually it's uh, referenced his article in the Space Amoeba episode. Uh, fun movie with the heart and logic of a child. I wanted that triple dolphin big thing when I was a kid. <laughs> and I absolutely agree. I'm, I was right there with you. Uh, Garudon, who runs the uh, out of context uh, movie or monster clips. I don't know if you've seen that Twitter account. Um, it's good to see you around here. Uh, He said, I recognize it's a movie that forever tainted the view of Japanese goji movies in the West, that they were all schlocky cheese fests about guys in suits, but I'd be lying if I didn't think it was another joy to watch. Still a favorite. Matt Metcalf said, if this movie doesn't work for you, you're dead inside. (laughs) That's harsh. Well, I can't can't say I disagree. Um, <laughs> Trisha Dwyer Morgan wrote, I go with the school of thought that Godzilla fights for his survival and the Earth. Sometimes that parallels human survival, but he isn't a superhero with ideals that include us. Instead, depending on the movie, he is either a titan or a wild animal doing what he must. Um, Ken Bockelman wrote, awful movie. Megalon as a kaiju is cool looking and that damn scene being D.A.M., you know, we are a family-friendly <laughs> podcast, uh, is well done, but that's it. The characters are lame. Godzilla looks like a high Muppet. More stock footage. Other than that, it's a masterpiece. Poop emoji. And lastly, we have Batagor Johnson, which I'm going to give a shout-out. He had a... Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, what's the the prospector guy from um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? What's his name? Yukon Cornelius. There we go. Yeah, that's his... Uh, his profile picture and I was like man yeah that's that's a good one that takes me <laughs> back um I don't get how people can call Godzilla versus Gigan a war crime 
and then rave about Megalon. I'm a fan of both, but truth be told, Megalon was the only Godzilla film to bore me as a kid. Too long to get to the showdown. <laughs> and I do want to come back to that tweet there. So, Chris, mm-hmm. let's go ahead and start with you. What were your thoughts? Um, let me just frame this one as every time in the past I would use the Godzilla GIF and it was like him doing the tail slide or the dance moves. I always thought that that was like fan footage or something that someone on Twitter put together. So every time I see that in an actual movie, like I'm blown away. I'm kind of amazed. And it honestly makes me, it warms my heart a little bit more toward the movie. Like if your movie doesn't have something campy in it, I probably am not going to like it as much. Um, Unless of course it's Godzilla 98, then I'll love it. But, um, Oh, there's plenty of camp. Don't worry, bud. Oh, I mean, you got Matthew Broderick in there. Anyway, um, yeah, this one, I this this last comment about too long to get to the showdown, I did feel like I was kind of okay with that because you know that the monster fights don't always do a lot for me. Mm-hmm. But um, I also don't know if it had quite the cast or the premise to warrant it going so long between or until the fight. But um, you, you didn't you didn't like Japanese Alan Rickman as the the villain? <laughs> I, I was thinking that too, but I didn't want to like, I thought maybe I was crazy, but it's so true. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, but oh man, I, the, I, I couldn't like where I was watching this in 2020, I couldn't shake the Ultraman stuff. I couldn't, mm-hmm. it was hard. It was hard to totally like disengage from the real world on this one. So um, I liked it. It was fun. I can see where this, I can see why people might be hopping off, but I kind of like it going in this direction because we all know that I'm like, when I, when it comes to Toku for me, I'm, I'm Sentai. So kind of when it moves closer to the superhero stuff, you're getting me back. Um, so I've, the stuff that people aren't liking about it sounds like from my limited perspective, is kind of what's what I'm digging the most right now. So, yeah. So two things. I have to say first, when you when you started that statement, it reminded me of Jimmy Fallon's impression of French Stewart on Celebrity SNL. And yeah, I, I just I had to say that. Otherwise, it'd eat, eat at me all night. Um, <laughs> Put it in the show notes. <laughs> OK, <laughs> um, but you're talking about, you know, the the Jet Jaguar and Ultraman influences. So I did not bring this up in the trivia and I apologize. Uh, so this is, I'm taking this offline off of uh, the hero fandom um, wiki or whatever. So Jet Jaguar was the result of a contest Toho had in the mid to late 19, okay, had in mid to late 1972 for fans to come up with a new hero for them to use, obviously to capitalize on all of the, the tokusatsu and anime, you know, happening at the time, right? So the winner of the contest submitted the drawing of a robot called Red Arone. The robot resembled both Ultraman and Mazinger Z, I believe is how you pronounce it, mm-hmm. um, which were both really popular at the time. The robot was renamed Jet Jaguar and was set to star in a vehicle, uh, in a film vehicle for him titled Jet Jaguar vs. Megalon, which pitted him against Megalon. Um, however, Toho figured Jet Jaguar would not be enough to carry the film on his own in-screen appearance or marketing value, which was a big thing for them at the time. So bet- during pre-production... Even after doing some tests and storyboards, the project was shut down for several weeks until screenwriter Shinichi Sekizawa was called in to rewrite the script to add Godzilla and Gigan have more marquee value. 
Um, I obviously don't have necessarily sources for that, but that's pretty. I know the oh, you contest. Have a wiki. Well, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know the the contest part was definitely true. Um, as mm-hmm. for it not being a Godzilla film, I don't remember if that's factual or not. But we're just gonna run with it, um, mm-hmm. and you can at me later. But yeah, I, it, it is hard to get away from the Ultraman vibes, especially with the uh, Ultraman Renaissance we're going through right now, uh, which so, I have I'm drowning in currently. But yeah, so so we had talked the other night, um, kind of doing a little pre-planning for the episode, and I brought in Ultraman Z and the Z Riser. So I've decided which three metals you would need to rise into Jet Jaguar. Okay, and um, one of them's kind of a deep cut, so I'm really hoping one of you two gets this. So the three metals that you'd combine is Colossus's 90s costume with the red on the outside and the yellow on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is um, Ultraman. Obvi- any. Uh, the third one is that moon guy that's at some McDonald's locations. You know, that Max President Moon who's playing the piano. <laughs> um, if you like combined all three of them, that's how you get yeah, evil Ultraman. <laughs> oh, man. So, you got to throw Joe Biden in there too, though. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I need. We need to retweet that one in the show notes. Rob made that's just this just ultra disturbing, pun intended. AC Pelosi. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Uh, ben, ben, I'll DM you your... that picture because it was truly. Uh, yeah, it was really good. Um, ben, what about you? What were your thoughts on the movie? Um, I love this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of straight up say that um i it does have flaws it is (gasps) limited there is a lot of stock footage but um you know it's it's one of those things where i think part of the reason that a lot of people kind of dislike it is that america doesn't really get a lot of people i shouldn't say america a lot of people in america don't get camp like they don't understand that tone um like there hasn't been a real like quote-unquote camp American production of anything since the sixties mm-hmm. and this movie, well, I guess, but that's, <laughs> that's, 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 uh, your mileage may vary, right? Yeah. Where a lot of, a lot of people went into that, like, you know, it's, it's one of those things where this movie is very much a product of its time. It's very much a product of its, of when it was made and why it was made. Um, but at the same time, it's done, it's ridiculous things like the Godzilla tail slide done with complete, straight face sincerity like this is they they are they like i remember because you guys talked uh last episode about like the some of the compromises that they had to make when they were doing godzilla versus gigan and this movie it feels like they set out to make a film and they made the film that they wanted to make like they the stock footage that they added is more just to pad it than to add plot points that were missing. Like it feels like you could still remove most of the stock footage that's in the film and the movie would, the movie would lose like a certain amount of runtime, but the plot would stay the same. Hmm. You know, they made the film that they set out to make and they wanted to make a film that was this, you know, superhero action film about this robot named Jet Jaguar that they wanted to make Mm -hmm. into like Mm -hmm. the leaping point of a new Mm -hmm. franchise. Mm -hmm. And you know, they, they, the, the fact that like they, they have a theme song for them that plays throughout the movie and yeah. then we get the version with lyrics at the end. It's like, yeah, this was like, you know, they, they, 
they do this in TV shows now where they have like a disguised pilot where it's like you introduce a new character in the middle of a, another TV show and be like, hey, this character is going off to do adventures over on the other side of town. Maybe they'll show up on another TV show eventually. Like the um, Flash with Arrow. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was thinking of. Um, well, I was thinking Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah. May mock the yeah. bird rest in peace. Oh, <laughs> I was, man, talk about... Uh, I was actually excited for that show. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I, I feel like this is another, like, you know, that's why like the, the whole plot of it, you know, even if the story of like them using Godzilla just to boost the marquee value of the film mm-hmm. isn't true. It's certainly a perfectly reasonable explanation for how, why this film is what it is Yeah, because Godzilla, like, the whole like the whole ending fight plays out like a professional wrestling match. Like it starts out with the two people in the ring, and then you have the the heel that comes in. Gigan comes in. Everybody, you know, it plays his music, and like he comes in and he starts. They start him and Megalon start like just curb stomping Jet Jaguar, and then all of a sudden you hear Godzilla's music, and he comes in over the hill, and it's like it, it's it's played very specifically for an audience to like stand up and cheer at certain parts and to boo at certain parts. Like it's, it's, it's meant to be what it is. And I can't hate a movie that sets out with a very specific vision and succeeds wholly in what they're trying to do. You know, camp it camp though. It may be silly though. It may be, I still love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's important, right? We've, we've talked about that before where is it fair to judge art for something it's not trying to do and Hmm. it's hard not to do that i mean it absolutely is you know especially since you know you guys are bigger star wars fans than i am i mean that is one of the things i've had to come to terms with not only with rise of skywalker but with like solo right did i go (laughs) and watch this movie for what it actually is trying to do and trying to be rather than what i wanted from it now one of those i enjoy a lot more than the other um, but that being said, I, I've recognized that my own, unf- like my own lack of objectivity comes into play there the same way that when we discussed Gamera super monster after watching rise of Skywalker, I was incredibly harsh on it coming to find out now I've looked into the f- film more coming back to it. I enjoyed a lot more cause I'm watching it for what it is, not for what I want it to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that was like one of my first. Too. I mean, we were still pretty early in the show. Yeah. By the time I watched that, so yeah, it was. Uh, we started in September, and that was uh, so that December. was December. So we're only a few yeah. months in. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think for me, the the way I described it to someone else is, even though I've been used to going off of the diving board with these movies, I'm not dumb enough to try to do that with this movie because I would break my neck. It's incredibly shallow, but. There's nothing wrong with that. There's there's a reason for a pool to have shallow water, right? And mm-hmm. if I try to go to this film expecting more than it's willing to give, I'm going to be incredibly disappointed. But that being said, I mean, it is a fun movie. It is, you know, weird, random boobs, porn aside, you know, like there's nothing about this film that I'm not like, man, I wouldn't want to come back to it. Yes, it does take a while to get to the monster action, but I mean, the car chases are fun. You know, the the kid inventor. I mean, that to me, that's just so cool. Like he makes his own little motorbike. You know, he gets kidnapped. He gets out of the box truck. The damn explosion's awesome. There's enough 
to keep you entertained without just the monster fights there at the end. Um, which at least for me personally, I can understand why people wouldn't be entertained, Mm -hmm. but there's some really weird illogical decisions being made though. Like the whole airplane thing, like that just felt like there's no point to that. That was way overcomplicated. Um, didn't need to be in there. Um, and then obviously the whole, I'm the villain. I'm going to give the plot, you know, give away what we're doing, even though there's a chance he could escape. Right. I mean, it's, yes, Mm -hmm. it's a plot device, but like, how many and, times have we seen that? <laughs> and like they have they have him tied up to a chair when there's literally, I mean, going to the the Bond villain trope, there's no reason to keep him alive. No. <laughs> like you don't need him. No. You're you're only you only have the inventor and his little brother because you want control of Jet Jaguar. There's no reason to keep this other guy alive at all. Yeah. But what? they can't kill him because it's not that kind of movie. No. But okay, so I, I realized this the other night watching it, and I never like dawned on me before. So they're taking the box to the the fault line, right? You know, and mm-hmm. he's, he wants to dump it in there. So I never realized that the goal was to get him down to Seatopia, apparently, so that they could not only help create Jet Jaguar, but it sounded like the impression I got is they want help creating more robots to protect themselves. So yeah. how did they expect him to live being in that giant container crate, just falling <laughs> and falling and falling? like? I just I mean, they they live through Megalon swatting it up into the air over the top of the hill. So uh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's it's got the same like crash resistant um foam inside of it that you can't see that the fridge in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull does that Indy rides in. Uh-huh. Well, I just figure maybe, you know, they would have thrown in some purple mattresses in there, you know, they would have been all right. Um yeah, so I mean, it, you know, I'm talking about how illogical the movie is, and I'm getting twisted up over this. Yeah, it's just there's there's small things I could nitpick, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely not my favorite film. Um, there's a lot of nostalgia for me, but I love the soundtrack. I mean, my son is a huge fan of this movie, especially obviously Jet Jaguar. I mean, how can you not be mm-hmm. a fan of each evil Ultraman? Um, <laughs> and then obviously there's there's an element of uh, the the fun I had as a kid watching the Mystery Science. Uh, theater 3000 version of this movie as well Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the few godzilla excuse me one of the few godzilla films that actually got that treatment i think if i remember correctly it was only this film and the obviously american version called godzilla versus the sea monster of ebra that got Mm -hmm. uh mst 3k so yeah they uh i think toho got wind of what was actually happening pretty quick um (laughs) Mm -hmm. there's more gamer films on there than godzilla films um So I think the general consensus is we like the film. It's definitely not like if this was a standalone film, it wouldn't make its way to the Criterion Mm -hmm. collection by any means. But there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, that's again, that's kind of this weird. So it's this weird standard we want to put on movies. Right. So I've never shied away from my love of Hot Rod. It's my favorite movie. I don't care what anyone says, but I'm not going to sit here and be like, you know, this is the best movie ever. If no one likes it, you know, you just don't get it. So I think that's kind of the weirdness about this movie, maybe apart from like All Monsters Attack more than anything, is what I've seen is just very, very, very strong opinions and almost somewhat controversial opinions on Godzilla films. So Chris, I know we had kind of talked a little bit the other night, but I kind of wanted to let you take control of the conversation here because I think you had some some good questions and some good thoughts about the matter. Great. 
Um, how hard should I come out swinging? That's <laughs> all right. That's all right. We will alienate everyone. Um, so here's my question. I'm going to ask the question, maybe unpack it a little bit and then throw it over to you two to answer it. Okay. But um, so, you know, I've only seen I've seen these movies, you know, the ones that we've covered on the show and mm-hmm. then Godzilla 14. So everything in the meantime, all these animes and Godzukis and whatever the hell else we heard about last week. Um, I don't know about these. It seems like almost like, what are we on? Almost 25? Uh, we've covered, this will be our 23rd movie we've discussed. Okay. So we've covered like 23 movies. And I think we've had un- unanimity from the podcast on like three. Like there's been like, it feels like there's so few that everyone loves. So it, I, I feel like every movie I'm learning, what, every movie I'm like, oh, this one's pretty good. We should probably all like this one. Turns out, no, <laughs> we, we don't all like this one. So it's like, I guess my question is kind of like, are, are, am I, are we getting to the ones that everyone likes? Um, do we just like five really well? And that translates to the whole franchise. Like, so I guess my question is for you guys, what is, what, what do you think I experienced? Cause from what I've seen, everything's controversial. No movie is actually good. Um, some people only like it because they grew up watching it. Some people only like it because it was the VHS copy they found in a dumpster behind a blockbuster. Um, so am I just getting the wrong read? Are we not on the good ones yet? Because I've liked them. I I guess there's there's been there's been a few that I'm like, oh, it's not great. But um, I don't know. I I've rambled, so I'll open that up. Yeah, if you want to start, Ben, I know because that's you've mm-hmm. talked about. You know, you've been a fan for a while, but obviously not being as active within the fandom. I think your perspective here is really important. Yeah. Um, it's interesting kind of coming at it from some the point of view, some like I mentioned kind of at the top, is that I don't hate any of the Godzilla films. Like I'm I'm one of those rare people who is like, you know, even the ones that I don't like as much, I still find I still enjoy to certain some degree. But I think a lot of it is just people like to find like it's it's rare for number one it's rare for a franchise like godzilla to exist that's run for as long as it has like there aren't a lot of franchises that have gone for this long like the other ones i can think of off the top of my head are like james bond and like doctor who and things like that that have been running forever but those are also franchises that have very specifically iterated like there's very clear transition points between different eras of that like of those franchises where you have different doctors or different people playing bond. Whereas with Godzilla, you can't break it down that easily because even the eras that we have quote unquote, like the Showa era is incredibly diverse in terms mm-hmm. of how, what films are in that era and the tones they strike and the different types of movies they are like, this is lest we forget, this is the same quote unquote era that brought us the original two Godzilla films, you know, the original, like, it is incredibly different in terms of tone. And I think people kind of start to play favorites where they have a specific idea of what Godzilla should be in their head. And they have specific movies throughout the timeline, either in the Showa era or the later eras that hit that tone and everything else can, they kind of disregard regardless of the quality of it as a film, they have an idea of like, this is what Godzilla should be and everything else is bad. Um, it's the same thing with other franchises like that, or like we mentioned with Star Wars or Star Trek or any really long running franchise. You have a really 
a lot of people with really strong opinions about what things quote unquote should be without taking the franchise as a whole into account. And I mean, people are entitled to their own opinions. I'm not saying that that's wrong to have a specific part that's a favorite. I just think that disregarding everything else because it doesn't match your own vision is your, what you're mainly doing is hurting yourself because you're sacrificing the, uh, other, these other films or what have you on kind of the altar of your own Mm -hmm. vision for a franchise that you have no control over. Yeah. Well, even if you do that, like it's, it's fine. Just don't enforce that on other people. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, with the prequels with star Wars, like, you know, I've, I've gone from loving them as a kid to hating them as an angsty teenager, young adult being a adult now where I like episodes one and three two, I can be fine never watching it again, but I'm not going to, you know, blame anyone for enjoying them or even for not liking them. Right. That's the, that's the whole point is, you know, you don't have to watch these movies more than you want, but you shouldn't fault anyone for enjoying it either. So I think you're right. I think it is something that, you know, it's, it's especially the Showa era. I mean, as we'll find Chris, like the Heisei era and the millennium era, there's more of a consistent tone. So yeah. you don't have that. It's that tonal shift, but I think you're right. I think it's just something that we're putting these standards on the franchise that they never intended. And it's easy for us to group them together when really the Showa era is just, this is the period of time that the films were made. That's mm-hmm. it. You know, it's yeah. not like a continuity or anything. Yeah, something something I was thinking about, just like um, just like um, when when franchises get this long, and it's not like the MCU where you've got like storyline, but I'm even thinking of like you know horror franchises used to be like a dozen movies, like Freddy versus Jason twelve when they like have left hell and now all they have left is like I don't know the park down the street to fight at. Where else is there? Um, and you always see these reboot movies. And I think Godzilla, it's far, you know, I'm probably wrong. It, probably at least 98 and 14 are soft reboots, I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. And then um, Shin, Shin, from what I've seen, kind of seems kind of closer to a single monster. But kind of where we're at, like, if you were to ask me, what is Godzilla? These single, these only Godzilla movies are so, so few of the franchise that we're at right now that like when other people would talk about what a soft reboot would look like, mine would, mine doesn't look like that. So that's kind of where I'm curious too. Like I'm getting so used to this superhero T posing Godzilla that like to always reset. I, I try to do a different dance this time. So you can stop making fun of me, <laughs> um, but like, like this whole, let's get Godzilla back to his roots. It's like, well, his roots kind of feel like these, monster fests Mm -hmm. there's four of them uh if you really want to reboot it put minya in there and i you got my butt in that seat as long as there's a vaccine Um. (laughs) well and i think it's interesting as well that i mean not to get into spoilers about films that you guys haven't watched yet but you can tell that the two recent american films godzilla 14 and then godzilla king of the monsters were made by two different sets of creative teams with two different visions of what Godzilla should be because they're, you know, like you said, they're, they both have different ideas about where taking Godzilla back to his quote unquote roots is. 
-hmm. And like Godzilla 14 has one vision for it. Godzilla King of the Monsters has another and tries to move the 14 version of Godzilla towards that. So it's, 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 I don't know if there will ever be a consensus on things like that. It's just one of those things that it's just, it varies and changes from person to person and based on their own preferences. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've seen that a lot. So I will speak from my experience, you know, having grown up with the films, especially the Showa era. I think when it came to the Heisei films, I'd only seen Return of Godzilla and Biollante mm. as a kid. I th- and Godzilla vs. Mothra. Um, I saw that one too. But most of them I didn't see as a kid. So growing up, the Showa Godzilla was just what I knew, right? Mm-hmm. So then coming back into the films again as an adult, you know, I came with this baggage of well, Godzilla 2014 was serious. You know, these films aren't serious. They're campy. You know, it's just, I'd I'd read online that the Showa films were campy and not serious compared to the original. And I just, I didn't realize it the same way that I allowed other people's opinions of the prequels to influence my views, right? So, you know, it's one of those things where I had to kind of take a step back and be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, there's room for all of these Godzillas at the table. Right. There's not just like what you're saying is, you know, there's not just one way to go about this, Chris. And just, you know, if you do a reboot, I mean, really, if you're going to reboot it out of this era, yeah, the Godzilla we see in some of these later films would probably be the more consistent one compared to the original. Um, But it is interesting the way that people just take such a dogmatic opinion of it. And I can say that as someone who used to be that way. Right. When I first started coming back in, I was very opinionated about it. I had um, my butt handed to me a few times just being like, hey, you're being a dick. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, (laughs) But I think it's when you're passionate about something, it's hard not to be that way. So, Chris, I think that's kind of it is I think a lot of people, they have these connections with these movies, you know, um, that it's hard to separate your life experiences and your passions and your feelings from these movies, I mean, again, we see that with Star Wars, too. I mean, these are films that people have grown up with. They've they've not just identified with, but like I can vouch how many times, you know, I like I associate Star Wars with when my parents were and same with Godzilla with when my parents were together and I still had a functional family. Right. So like I have those ties there. So I, I have very deep feelings toward these films. There's other people who feel that way, too. So it is hard when you wrap, I mean, really, it's kind of when you wrap your identity up in an art, which uh, can be a very dangerous thing, as we've all, as we've all learned. Um, but my question, I guess, with the message itself, um, unless, if you have more to say, Chris, I don't want to cut you no, off. No, I think, um, I think those summarize it pretty well. I just, it's just interesting, these differing perspectives and then mm-hmm. building this perspective as an adult rather than as a kid. Yeah. Or it's a pseudo version of an adult, at least. Hmm. I will say one quick caveat to that is I think part of it is when the 90s films came out, this is what I meant to say earlier, um, when the 90s films came out, they have a more serious tone, as Ben can attest to. Mm-hmm. So... As we've seen with superhero films and everything else, there's a tendency to view serious as better, as realistic, right? Um, as a result, for the longest time, I mean, and you'll see this in marketing too, the Godzilla you see in the 90s is kind of like the de facto Godzilla. You see it in a shirt design. You see it, I mean, even the Criterion set, the Godzilla on the front is based off the 90s version. Um, 
But over the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, there's been a push to reevaluate these 50s, 60s, and 70s films with a different perspective. Now that the films are accessible in the original Japanese. And I think that has helped a lot um, understanding like, oh, wait, like these movies weren't intended to be schlock fests, right? They Mm -hmm. actually had things they were trying to say. The dubbing isn't always the most accurate. You know, what you're saying earlier, Ben, is, you know, these voice actors can't really convey that raw emotion a lot of these actors had. Um, I just listened to the Monsters vs. Men episode on Rodan. And Kenji Sahara, his acting in that is just, it's so powerful because he's so constrained. Like he's not over the top and that's what makes it such a good role. But you put that voice actor on top and you lose all of that, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of it, Chris, is just the 90s films really kind of took the general, like within the fandom. I mean, it was, oh my gosh, these effects and the score and all this stuff. But people have gone back and been like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like these older films really do have something they're trying to accomplish, which, you know, the Ishiro Honda biography has helped. There's been numerous books as well. Um, you know, all the G fest and stuff. I think it's just a matter of it catching up um, and people reevaluating their own opinions too. Sure. Mm. And then of course you have the people who are like, show, show air is the best because they think older is better. And yeah, it's just, yeah, you know how it is. Original trilogy over prequel trilogy. The the 90s era Godzilla films are kind of to the Godzilla franchise what the Christopher Nolan Batman films are to the Batman franchise, oh, where they're no. like this this big hit of like codifying movies that are all mm-hmm. like they do they are consistent. They follow like a very much of a through line of a plot. They all have a consistent tone. Um they tie directly back to the original film in a way that a lot of the later films like the one Godzilla versus Megalon doesn't necessarily, but they've also kind of become franchise defining in a way that causes a lot of other, like, and everything that kind of came up between that to be disregarded for a long time. You know, a lot of people forgot how much, how good, like, for instance, the um, Tim Burton Batman movie was, or Mm -hmm. that the sixties show with Adam West was because they were so obsessed with Nolan's films. And it's like, go back and look at them. They're actually, you know, they have their qualities. They're good in their own ways. There's no reason to disregard them just because you like this version, you know? Yeah. Same people who are writing off the new Batman because they're like, well, Nolan did it best. And it's like, you can't even allow there to be something new because you're so set on what this trilogy was. It doesn't help that they keep like trying to repeat that success with all the other films that they're making. But I know. I really wish I could do the Bane voice too. Whatever. <laughs> Fans of the host should like this new Batman because Stephanie Meyer wrote the host and also wrote Twilight, which set his Robert Pattinson's career, you know, trajectory. I really hope this isn't your freaking theological insight because no, you're fired. No. Hey, you remember that uh, picture of a day challenge that you're driving doing? Um, the real villain of the host. I just yeah. traced the, the book cover of the Stephanie Meyer version. Because um, <laughs> everybody in that book is a treasure. There's no monster in that movie. Have you honestly read that book? Yeah, have I read that book? Yeah. I've read <laughs> everything she's put out except for the new one. Oh, Lord. Um, oh. So if, you ever, if anyone ever wants to talk Twilight, hit me up. I'm not even lying. I've read, I've read all six. HMU, baby. <laughs> um, my dms speaking um, of trauma yeah it, actually some of those some of those points does tie in really well can i can i 
introduce the point with my own thought. Um, thank you. Um, so one of the things that we want to talk about is like, so this movie is one of the first where we get back to like some of the nuclear talk that kind of defines some of the first ones. Um, so in a way, we kind of get back to the roots, so to speak. But it's it's a markedly different tone in terms of nuclear armament. It's a remarkably different like way of handling it. So mm-hmm. instead of like the nuclear radiation changing um, ancient monsters, they're just kind of kind of like pissing off some underwater people. Um, so we we talked about like rebooting the franchise, these soft reboots. Like, is it like the question is like is is it necessarily appropriate to still go back to the nuclear discussion? Is it being handled well? Um, well how did we? Um, yeah, would it be appropriate for these films to keep having these anti-nuclear messages? Or now that it were into the early seventies, should should they shift? Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. when you look at ninety-eight and fourteen, should they have had the same nuclear messaging or not? Was this one expected to? Um, so now it's my turn to throw it out. Yeah. Well, because that was kind of my thought is, you know, there's nothing wrong with having those themes, right? Because they do need to be discussed. But there is a certain point where what is, in essence, trauma, national trauma, um, runs the risk of being commodified, right? And I actually kind of want to open this up to the listeners. We'd love to hear from you because we don't really want to, like, spend another 30 minutes talking about this when really it's something that I've been thinking about, but I don't really have an answer. So like I've seen over the past few weeks on Twitter, there's been various black writers and actors um, and just even people in general who have talked about like, I'm tired of seeing my trauma used as plot devices. I'm tired of seeing about the struggles of the black community. I'm tired of seeing about how, you know, how successful, you know, or like how good of a story it is when a black man doesn't go to jail, you know, all these different things. It's like, I'm tired of this, right? I want to see an actual story that celebrates my identity that doesn't just, in essence, commodify the trauma of the black experience in America. And I think there's something to be said about that, right? There's a time and a place for those movies. Absolutely. There's a time and a place for those plot points in art. But there's a certain point, too, where it becomes in essence, it becomes porn, right? We, we just watch it, we consume it. You know, there's that, that almost like that sense of satisfaction of like, you know, I'm watching this and I'm, I'm socially aware of these problems, but it doesn't actually do anything because there's no actual real substance there. You know, we go back to like Ebra, Horror of the Deep, and it was a great film, but like the nuclear messages there were absolutely surface level. There was nothing really except for the fact they were producing bombs on this island. It was a James Bond plot, right? And at the end, You know, it's like, well, if we don't take care of this, you know, this may happen again kind of thing. And that was it. It was just kind of a pithy little saying. There wasn't anything there, which is fine for what it is. But again, when people talk about wanting to go back to the roots, like you're saying, Chris, there there is a risk of you, you kind of devalue the meaning when you just try to keep doing the same thing over and over. And there's no actual like heart and substance and reason behind what you're doing apart from just making another movie. And I feel like at this point in time in history, it's very clear Godzilla was a moneymaker, right? It wasn't about the artistic integrity that the original film had, which again was still made to make money, but there's a different sincerity and honesty in that original film that we don't get with the later. And that's fine. But I think to try to like 
keep going back to that. I just, I don't know. I think there's something disingenuous about that. Yeah. I think there's a lot to that. I think it's also one of those things where like this, this, cause Godzilla vs. Megalon came out in 73 and you know, obviously that's almost 30 years after the end of world war two. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the people who like, I don't want to be callous about it, but it's like a lot, there's something to be said about distance creating almost like a, a trauma barrier mm-hmm. where that's no longer like an open wound. So the, like the treatment of like the way that the, I guess you could call it an anti-nuclear message in this film is kind of just mentioned at the beginning and the end. It's not really mentioned through most of the film. Um, it's treated almost more like an American film than it is like the way that Godzilla kind of historically treated its anti-nuclear messages and especially the early films that Honda directed. Um, it's much more like a lot of American science fiction films from this late fifties and early sixties kind of have this idea where, Oh yeah, nuclear power is bad, but obviously from the American perspective, well, we have all the nuclear power, so it's not that bad. It's only bad if we lose control of it. Right. So that's kind of, kind of the same kind of almost the same idea that this film has where the idea of nuclear power itself isn't treated as a bad thing. It's only that it was being used improperly. Like Mm -hmm. the, the problem that the protagonists have with it is the way, is the way that it's being used as for these underground tests that are causing all of these problems. It's like, you know, almost, it's almost like things have moved to a different place in I don't even want to say the culture because I don't know if this is, this might just be like Sekizawa's point of view and the point of view of a few other people who were working on this film. And maybe they didn't think about it that much, but again, things have progressed to the point, you know, 20 some, almost 30 years on where that just wasn't like, it wasn't the, the hot button topic anymore Mm -hmm. for them. And that's even, you know, it's like, I'm trying to think of what, like a, a Western comparison would be. And the nearest thing I can think of is what if somebody, um, you know, what if somebody like 30 years after nine 11 did something similar with a film where they talk about the idea of flying up a, a terrorist, flying a plane into a building as bad more because it's a misuse of the plane than because of the people dying in the, in the, you know, as a result of the accident. And I, I don't know. It's, it's, a it's, I can't really like pass a judgment on it because I don't really understand the Japanese culture of the era well enough to kind of make a a statement to why they may have pushed that aside. But I think you're right. The idea of commodifying trauma and being like, oh, this is something that we have in the past or is something that everybody's going to understand uh, from like, we don't even have to go into a lot of details about like, oh, these are nuclear bombs that are being exploded underground and that's bad. It's just kind of understood that the audience would know that that's bad. So mm-hmm. when tragedy is kind of used as a shorthand for your plot, that's when like that's when you start having issues, you know? Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's almost like a writing shortcut and that's not a great look, honestly. Yeah. See, and I was thinking about that. You're mentioning, you know, maybe it just wasn't a hot button uh, topic. But as we talked about in our hetero episode, you know, you have the prophecies of Nostradamus, which comes out in 1974, which, you know, um, you know, Yoshimitsu Bano, who 
wrote and produced or directed uh, Hedera, you know, he was one of the writers on that film. And that does deal with, you know, just the the dangers of nuclear warfare, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the global nuclear conflict and the arms race and everything. So, like, I think you're right. I think there is that distance there where it's not as... I'm not going to say impactful, right? Because this is where we could really get into some anachronisms. But it's the same way where, I mean, if you think about it, like when 9-11 happened, obviously it was a very traumatic moment. But as we've moved on, you know, you still have people like my grandma who will share a 9-11 meme on May 5th. But for the most part, we don't think about it, right? It's just become part of our society where, you know, the way that we go to the airport and all this stuff, you know, the Patriot Act, all these things, like it's just kind of, we're so used to it that we don't think about what that event caused. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there is something there. Um, and even Miroslav Volf, uh, I, I was promising myself I'd reference him in this episode. Um, he talks about that in his end of memory where, you know, when it comes to trauma, there's, there's a responsibility of remembering rightly and responsibly. Um, and I only bring that up because when it comes to these elements, it's very easy for us to think, well, you know, I don't think about it very often, therefore it isn't prevalent. But yeah, we, we're not scholars of Japanese culture in the 70s, so we don't really know what the mood was here. But I think there is a responsibility as a, a artist that if you are going to handle these topics, you handle it responsibly. And you're right, mm-hmm. it just did feel kind of like, a, oh, well, these are bad because if we keep doing this, we're going to get hurt. You know, it wasn't really the implication of what is this, hap- you know, what's the implication of doing these bombs doing to our world? Right. It was just kind of, Mm -hmm. oh, well, we're going to get killed kind of mentality to it. So I think that is something to at least address, but it's hard to moralize the uh, directors and writers' decisions here. That's the last thing we want to do. You got anything, Chris, or are you ready to to lay on the the preaching? You know, this one, this one was a little tougher to make a theological point. Uh, You know, obviously, you've got the people who live under the water which is what we've talked about, the symbolic world of the ancient Near East is that God's enemy lived in the water. Mm-hmm. But this time they're kind of the heroes and they come out of the water to challenge the monsters. So it's like a reverse of Daniel here. So it's kind of tough. But you could kind of say the evil Ultraman was like a robotic atom controlling, having dominion over the animals to kind of tame the sea again. But it's so like upside down and backwards. It was hard to, it was hard to say too much. So I'm happy to say that um, Evil Ultraman was a robotic Adam, and hopefully when we see him again, his Adamic influence will just rise out of that. But, um, man, if it's not an indication of what this film had or did not have to say that I struggled with this, I don't know what's a more damning indictment. Yeah. Honestly. I think you are allowed a pass for the past few uh, gold mines that you've produced. (laughs) Man, I got to start, like... You start writing these somewhere. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so I wanted to, again, open up. We want to hear from you about that topic, right? You know, just kind of this, this, is it, you know, because I, here's the thing. Obviously, we have a Godzilla movie that's supposed to be coming out within the next year, right? It'll be interesting to see how they tackle those themes. So we want to hear from you. I mean, you know, is it, is it the right thing to do to keep coming back to those themes? Should we... Should we take the approach of Ashiro Honda where he he desired to see more creativity in what Godzilla stood for? Um, do we start seeing in these films a commodification of trauma like you brought up? We want to hear from you because we want to have that conversation. 
Um, so you can email us, you know, DM us, whatever the case is. Um, but there was a quote I wanted to read before we close from uh, Stanley Harawas, who is a, uh, a theologian and ethicist. Um, so he's talking here about marriage, but I want to I want to invite you all to think about this in the context of these films. So we never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we marry first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage being the enormous thing it is means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. So I just, I brought that up because it's just one of those things where as we see Godzilla continually changing throughout the films, it is somewhat of a challenge to keep remembering like, you know, is this the same series, so to speak? And how do you kind of develop and adjust those feelings and not, again, try to put standards on these movies that uh, they didn't ask for, right? Um, so before we, we close here and give uh, Ben a chance to plug himself a little bit, I wanted to share a review left uh, from one of our listeners, Kaiju Kim. So her review was, I recently started listening to a few Kaiju podcasts, and if I had to pick my favorite, it would be this one. David and Chris really make me think of the films I grew up with in a different way, and it's just fantastic. Keep up the good work. So thank you, Kaiju Kim, for that. Um, if you do leave a Apple or Stitcher review, which we have none on Stitcher, I didn't even know you could leave that until a couple of days I ago. Just, I just learned that right this second. I was today <laughs> years old. Uh, so we will definitely read that on the air. Um, as we've uh, explained before, it does help with just, you know, accessibility and people finding us. But at the end of the day, you know, it is what it is. Um, that's not why we're doing it. But we do appreciate the reviews all the same. Um, ben, we do appreciate you coming on, but if you wouldn't mind, take a few minutes, plug yourself. I know you do some writing, but you also edit a podcast. Why don't you talk about that? Um, and just anything else that we should know about you? Yeah. So, uh, if you want to kind of check in on my writing stuff, like, uh, how Chris and I originally met, you can go over to 1138.com. It's all star Wars based. So if you're a star Wars fan, you can head over there. Um, speaking of star Wars as well, I also, I'm the editor for a podcast called the Imperial Senate podcast. I am not on it, but I do edit it. Um, you know, if you want to check that out, you can. Uh, it is much more. Uh, it's very different from this podcast is what I'll say. But uh, that's, that's, as much, that's as much as I'll say. Um, and then if you want more of my writing personally, I do have a personal blog that only only right now has a couple of short stories on it. There's not a whole lot there. And hmm. it's been very sparsely updated. Um, it's just the web address for it. Let me make sure I got this right here. It's just, uh, gears, nails, and chewing gum.com. I, I created that domain probably six years ago now, and I still don't know why I made it, what it just is. Just keep but, renewing it. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and I just, I don't put much up there except for some random short stories that I, uh, have. Um, I have a Twitter, but I don't have any posts on it right now. I'm currently taking a hiatus from Twitter. Um, but you can Smart still, man. you can still hit me up there if you want. Um, you know, give me a follow. I might be able to follow back and then we can, you know, share DMS or whatever the case might be. Um, but yeah, uh, I mainly focus on writing more than podcasting personally. So, yeah, I'll make sure to plug all of that in our notes there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we really do appreciate you on. That was kind of one of the things Chris and I talked about is trying to get, you know, some more diverse voices instead of having the same podcast hosts on every single mm -hmm. show. Um, Cause at a certain point you're like, I've already heard you before. 
So it's it's good to have, you know, it, it's a good reminder that just because we don't see certain names pop up as often in Twitter discourse, it doesn't mean that they're not watching and interacting with the conversations. Because mm-hmm. I do remember your, uh, your, your live tweets when you're going through the Criterion set, and that was a blast. I had fun reading <laughs> those. All right, Chris. So actually, wait, crap. I still have to, I have to close. Sorry. Didn't mean to tease yeah. you there. Wow. Okay. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to the Kaiju Apostle podcast. If you like what you heard or you have a comment you'd like to share, make sure to let us know over at our Twitter page. Our handle is Kaiju Apostle Pod. Or you can send us an email at contact at thekaijuapostle.com. You can also follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Worms, and that is W-E-R-M-S. And are you still taking a, a Sentai break? Um, I'm taking like an everything break. Good on you. No, not on purpose. I would love to watch something. Uh, um, no, Ultimate Z's been really good. So watch that if you have. Well, it's too late if you haven't. Um, <laughs> no, there's one that everyone's talking about that's going up. I'm going to pull it up real quick because I have it right at my fingertips. Um, it's going up. It's another Toku show. Um, Denko Chojid Gridman is going up on the Superaya YouTube page. So. I've heard a lot about that. So is that the original Gridman? I couldn't tell you. I could barely tell you that about the ones I like and know well. So <laughs> but I don't know. Mm. It's going up on the Super I YouTube page, and it's probably going to have English subs. So I'll check that out. Okay. Yeah, I remember hearing about SSSS dot Gridman, um, but I think it's a little too fan servicey for me personally. Um, but I've heard some really good stuff about that. So. But until next time, um, may Mothra watch over you, Godzilla power you, and High Priest Moist Minya bring you joy. Okay, I am going to redo the first part of that <laughs> that intro really quick. Um, thank you again, everyone, for tuning in to the Kaiju Apostle podcast. If you like what you heard or you have a comment you'd like to share, make sure to let us know over at our Twitter page. Our handle is Kaiju Apostle Pod. Okay, yeah, that was super lame. I'm not leaving that in. <laughs> I was like, I just, I can't come up with anything there anymore. It's bumming me out. Like, usually it's just like... Having, having riff written in parentheses on a script is really like, that's a pressure situation, man. <laughs> no, I know. But that's the problem is I'd start doing that. So I'm going to like remove it. Just leave it blank. I think that's actually, you were, you were, you said what I was thinking. So. <laughs>